Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you daydream believers, and welcome to another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. We're beamed to you today courtesy of the electromagnetic spectrum and with the sincere gratitude to Isaac Newton, James Clark Maxwell, and Heinrich Hertz, among others. And of course, without this man, the show would simply be me just introducing nothing and then me giving you a solemn farewell with literally nothing in between. Welcome, Matthew Dickerson. Tell us about what's been on your mind. Well, it would be a bit bland, wouldn't it, if it was just the intro and the outro and that was it. <laughs> that, well, that's all I've got. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem is I've got now, I can't think of anything, James, because I've got Daydream Believers in my mind now. I've just <laughs> got that song. I woke up with the monkeys in my head and I thought, right, okay, well, let's go on in the intro. <laughs> I haven't heard of the monkeys for a while. That's, that's a strange one to have sticking in your head from nowhere. I'm actually intrigued this week. I sat down and watched a show, just flicked it on the TV and, and thought I'd watch something. And it was one of those shows that exposed the life of a serial predator, someone that goes and takes advantage of people and lies and manipulates his way through society or through his life. And I actually thought about it, and this one had spanned over probably three decades or more, and I actually wondered whether or not it was easier to be a serial predator three decades ago or whether it's easier now. And on the flip side, whether it's easier for potential victims of a serial predator to work out that something's not right, or yeah, right. whether three decades ago it was easier to work out that then. So, for yeah, I guess, example, I guess you, you would have had a lot of anonymity back thirty years ago, a, a, a lot more sneakiness, but you would have had to have been a lot more creative in how you did stuff. But anyway, yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, one of the things that this particular person did would research someone and go out there and find someone. Use dating apps is obviously a way that someone can find information. But once they found their victim, they would then go and research that victim to the nth degree so they knew everything about them, so they knew all the right buttons to push. Uh, and I was talking to my wife about it and she said it'd be easy for you, wouldn't it? You just have to find a woman that would come up and start talking about electric vehicles or, <laughs> or some sort of, say she was a technology CEO. Target, Matthew Dick, isn't right. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And I'm going, oh, I'd be a sucker for it. <laughs> so it's that type of thing where, where this particular person could research the victims, the potential victims, so they really knew everything about them and then take advantage, get the right buttons to push really basically say, I'm your perfect man because, oh, subtly all these things just match exactly mm. what you're after. But then, so that makes it easier for the predator. So I thought it is easier for the predator now. But then you go back 30 years ago when someone came along into your life, then you'd say, well, it's hard to really research that person and find out everything about their background. Yeah. Where's their social media feed? And I think that's one thing I have read before that – when someone looks up someone, oh, gee, James, yeah, I want to know if he's a reasonable guy or not, and you look up social media feeds and you go, oh, there's nothing there. Mm. In social media world, someone doesn't exist at all. That's a bit of a red flag mm. of itself. Or then if you do find some social media feeds and you start to find out, hold on, this person in this particular case we're watching, they said they're a doctor. Hold on, this person doesn't appear to be a doctor in any of the social media feeds, <laughs> any of the information out there in the internet. They're saying they're a doctor. Is that really going to be true or not? So yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced either way whether the modern world we live in, where there's so much information available about so many different things, whether that's helping the potential victims or helping the potential predators out there. Yeah, to be discussed well, further. Yeah, certainly th something to ponder over the week, yeah. Well, in our show today, we'll hear about a new way that BMW are bringing you a nice toasty bottom. And UAVs are breaking records, and Aussie telcos are stepping up in the fight against scam messaging. But we start with a story to bring you some listening pleasure. 
Are you happy with the way your Bluetooth headphones work? I would have said that I have been pretty impressed up until now, actually. But then I'm a child of the 70s and therefore I'm pretty easily pleased. So whenever there's an announcement like the one where Bluetooth audio is having a massive upgrade, I'm a bit stuck for words. Matt, how can Bluetooth improve from where they were yesterday? It is a good question, and most people listening to this right now are probably using Bluetooth to listen to it. So we kind of accept that Bluetooth is pretty much a part of our life. And the headphones, they seem to, you plug them in, and they work, and it sounds good. And what else can you do with that? That's right. What more is there? And of course, as Big Bang Theory, my favourite TV show, says, everything is better with Bluetooth. So why not? Let's have Bluetooth (laughs) on everything, but... Can we get better Bluetooth? Well, of course we can. There's always room for improvement (laughs) in everything we do. There is the Bluetooth SIG, the Bluetooth Special Interest Group, and that's a group that's formed industry players mainly on that group to keep looking at the standards and making sure that everyone agrees on the standards and they manufacture various devices to those standards. And it's great. I like special interest groups much better than a specific manufacturing company that owns a type of standard because Mm. then that particular group has to get all the players to agree to something. And no one company goes off and then says, we're going to make lots of money out of this. And I think of lightning cables from Apple, for example. They own that. They charge people a fee to use that in any of the devices they manufacture. And they set the standard for that. Whereas a SIG, a special interest group, means that there is a general consensus among manufacturers. And sure, objectivity, yeah? Yeah, I think so. And, and you can get some manufacturers who go off on a tangent and say, well, we don't like that. We're going to go and do our own one anyway. But mm. normally, if there's enough strength in the group, they bring it back. So Bluetooth's one of those. And so if you're a car manufacturer, you're a headphone manufacturer, you're a device manufacturer, you've got to conform to that standard because you want to play with the same Bluetooth standards that everyone else is. So the codec that everyone uses at the moment is the SBC codec. But... The Bluetooth SIG has been working on for a couple of years. It's been delayed a little bit because of the pandemic, but for a couple of the years now, they've been working on the new LC3 codec. And like you say, who cares? I've got Bluetooth <laughs> now. It all works fine. Whatever. As soon as you can stick it in your ear, press go, and you can hear your music nice and cleanly. That's right. Now, the LC3 codec gives you one of two advantages. It either gives you about double the audio quality. Now, again, you and I sound pretty good already, James. Do we need better audio quality? But some people think that Bluetooth isn't quite as good as plugging in a set of headphones. So it does give you double the standard of audio. Or if you're happy with the standard of audio, it gives you about double the battery life. So it keeps delivering that nice, clean audio that you've got now, but you can get longer battery life. And so from that perspective, you say, well, that sounds reasonable. I get X number of hours out of my Bluetooth headphones now. So double that sounds pretty good. So that's where the standards go. So even though there's not a crying need out there to make the Bluetooth standard better, well, there's always improvements you can make. And in 10 years' time, we'll look at what we do with Bluetooth and go, wow, remember those old days, the old Mm. SBC codec? (laughs) What were you thinking in those days? The other thing that's always a bit annoying is the ability to connect multiple devices with multiple headphones. So, for example, you and I are sitting there, we've got our device that's putting out some signal, and I say, hey, James, why don't you listen to the same music that I'm listening to? I've got the monkeys on. And then I take one headphone out of my ear and give you one headphone, and so we both get a slightly crippled version, a mono version, if you like, of that. Whereas this Bluetooth standard allows us to have two sets of headphones plugged into the one device and listening at the same time. There are some ways you can do that now with some Bluetooth headphones, but it's not really designed for it. They're trying to trick the codec, whereas this codec is designed to have that type of thing where you can have multiple pairings. So you can have 
two pairs of headphones connected to a single phone, or you could have sitting around the lounge room a TV with everyone just with their own Bluetooth headphones in because mm. nothing worse than sitting in the lounge room and someone sitting there says, can you turn it down? It's too loud. And yeah. I go, oh, no, I want to turn it up because it's not loud enough. And so you're all just having to accommodate somewhere in the middle because everyone had their own Bluetooth headphones on. It would kill the conversation, but you could, <laughs> you could watch the TV. So there's a few things Fine, like good. that where it will make it a little bit more flexible, a little bit better. And, of course, the most important thing, James, is you also have to make new purchases. That's where the manufacturers yeah. get excited about it. They are saying that there are some Bluetooth devices that have come out very recently that might just need a software upgrade. But in general, you're probably going to need to buy new headphones or a new device, new phone, whatever it might be. And, and I imagine that most of the new phones that come out over the next few months will start to use this new standard. But generally, it's going to take some new purchases, so that's yeah. why manufacturers love the idea of it. And so part of this is trying to convince the people how important it is that they do upgrade. <laughs> oh, James, you are so cynical in your old we've, age. <laughs> we've, we've talked about oh, like Thomas Edison. Now, we know he didn't invent the light bulb. He, he refined the light bulb. Mm -hmm. But part of his success was to convince people they needed a light bulb. Yeah, and I think anyone there, anyone in, I suppose, technology, but I suppose in general, when they've got a product that you don't know that you need, mm. Part of the attraction there is to convince them, and I think of Tesla with Elon Musk, yeah. he's changing the world in my belief, but people don't really think they need electric vehicles mm. until they see all the advantages of electric vehicles and they go, oh, actually, I could use that. So you're right, so many people throughout history have actually shown a need where people didn't know there was a need, yeah. and they just happen to have a product to fill that need. <laughs> How convenient. Well, here's another fill the need. Um, with our last car purchase, we uh, chose the model just below the platinum top of the line model. And the only thing that I can remember that we gave up on in choosing the second from the top was the heated seats. Now we live in Dubbo. There's not much call for it out here. But if my situation changed now and I had to move two and a half hours south of Bathurst, well, it might be nice to change my mind and ha at least have the option of getting those heated seats in there. Will BMW now have a solution? Matt, what's the new option for heated seating that BMW are offering? Well, let's go back a step. I love the idea about heated seats and the way they're doing it with BMW, but I think it's part of this broader process we're going through in society at the moment where we don't have that same fascination with ownership. And you've mm. only look at homes, and maybe homes is a little bit different because we're forced into not owning as many homes as we used to, but in the last three decades, we've gone from people renting their homes has gone from 17% of society in Australia up to 30%. Now, again, I know a lot of that is affordability, yeah. but people are accepting the fact that they don't need to buy the thing and own it. They're okay just paying a fee, a monthly fee, whether that be rental, whether that be some other fee they might pay to have access to that. And also think of exchange service. I used to one of my businesses used to make a lot of money out of selling exchange service to clients. It was a core part of our business almost. And it would cost you round numbers, say 10 grand to put an exchange server in. Now, if you're a small business with three users and you wanted all the features of exchange server, bad luck. You paid your 10 grand because mm. that's how much the setup cost. And as you had more and more users, it became incrementally smaller in terms of a per user cost. Nowadays, no one buys an exchange server, or some people do, but very few people buy an exchange server and put it in their business. They just pay a monthly fee. It might be $10 a month, $8 a month, whatever it might be, different providers. But you pay a small fee, and you don't care that you don't own that exchange server, and it's not sitting on your premises. You just pay the monthly fee, and away you go. Yeah. So BMW is the first of many car manufacturers who will go this way, I believe, where they're saying you don't really need to have that seat heating option when you buy it. Exactly as you said, I don't need it. 
I don't really want to spend the extra whatever dollars it is. And keep in mind that car manufacturers make a lot of money when they sell you accessories. When they sell yeah. you all those add-ons, it might cost $1,000 to have heated seats. Now, most manufacturers actually have the equipment, the hardware they need in those seats already. When you choose the option not to have heated seats, you probably still get heated seats in your car, but they don't turn it on or they don't give you a switch on the dash oh, to actually turn yeah, it on. Right. Because from the manufacturing process, when you've got a seat without heating in it and a seat with heating in it, then you've got to have two lots of stock in your manufacturing process and make sure you get the right seat in the right car. So it complicates it, doubles your mm. stock holdings. And with all the just-in-time manufacturing processes they have in place now, you don't want to have lots of stock of lots of different varieties. So often, you just have, there's all the seats, they go in there, right, this is the one that was chosen with seat heating, great, put that $2 switch on, and that's $1,000 we just made out of that extra <laughs> switch we put on. But that's only good if you do it at the time of sales. What yeah. about three months later, six months later? Yeah, circumstances change. No. Yeah. So BMW have said, we will give you the option with a microtransaction, $18 a month, and you can turn on through the app in your phone connected to your particular car, you can turn on seat heating. I only want it on for a couple of months because it's only cold for a couple of months. Sure, turn it on for those couple of months, and then later on in the year, turn it off again. If you want the bulk discount, buy a year's worth, instead of paying $18 a month times 12, you pay $180. So you get a small discount. That's what I was thinking as well. Like, Is it something that you could only, you know, you, you could get just for a couple of months and then not worry about it through the, the warmer months? Yeah, that's exactly right. There's not many places outside the Antarctic Circle that uh, you, you probably need it. 12 but, months uh, of the year, that's right. So, And some people might just like the idea of getting in there even in the summer months and having a nice warm tushy and good luck to them. But <laughs> that's the thing. So we're seeing a whole range of things. So from BMW already, we're seeing seat heating. We're seeing heated steering wheel, $12 a month for a heated steering wheel. You might want that only in the really cold months. Yeah. So you might turn them for one month or maybe two months. If you want to record the footage from your car's cameras, you can turn that on. And again, there's all these different options there. So you may buy a base package in years to come, and then via the app, you just turn on these different features as you will. As you choose to. With Tesla, they've got a slightly different model. I've had this in place for a long time where you do use the app, but you turn on a feature, say, for example, self-driving feature. You can turn that on, but you turn it on once. So you pay a large chunk of money, I'm talking about thousands of dollars, and you turn that option on. But again, you don't go back to the dealer. You don't go through a dealer process when you're buying the car. You decide in three months' time or someone else buys it off you in three years' time, they can just turn that on. So we're getting yeah, to that point right. now, very close to that point, a little way to go from some manufacturers where you control some of the things in your car via your phone and that just makes the whole process more modern, more like we are used to doing things, which is via our phone, turning things on and off. So clever. So, so clever. Also, something pretty clever, unmanned flight. It's a thing and it's been a thing for quite a while now. In fact, UAVs have been used for military reconnaissance and airstrikes for over a century, would you believe? Alfred Noble was even attaching cameras to rockets way back in 1896. The more modern Predator drone that you might recognise more readily as a UAV didn't really come into play until 96, though. Now, given that they're unmanned, the big deal in this sort of aviation is in being able to maximise the time spent in the air. So what do you reckon the record for the longest flight is, folks? Can I guess? Can I guess? <laughs> Matt, this is your cue to surprise the hell out of us. <laughs> well, when I put this research together, it was 26 continuous days. 
But I suggest it probably hasn't come back down by yet. So it's probably more than 26 oh, continuous wow. days. They broke their oh. own record. And this is Airbus. That Sorry, so this was so recent that it's still up there. It's still up there right now as we speak. Okay, and so I can do a month in the air. Basically, you, wow. that's exactly right. They broke their own record. So this is Airbus have made this particular plane. It's called the Zephyr S. So as I said, when I did this research, it was 26 continuous days in the air. And when you look at the plane, it looks like just a lot of wing and a lot of solar panel. <laughs> so it's a plane that doesn't have a huge payload. It's unmanned, so you don't need to have a traditional cockpit. You don't have people in it. That's not the idea of it. But it's got huge wings. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, it wants lots of surface area for the solar panels to be able to get energy, obviously. But also, large wingspan means that you don't have to fly that fast. And it's not trying to get from point A to point B as quick as possible. Mm. It's trying to stay up in the air. So slower speeds are obviously good for it. 26 continuous days means that obviously there have been some overnights in there, a fair few of them. Yeah, wow. The solar panels obviously generate power during the day. There's night time where it's got our batteries on board to keep it going at night. And also there's a possibility of some other atmospheric conditions impacting it. But this thing flies high, so it's typically above the clouds on most days. And people talk about, oh, solar panels are no good. You can't get any solar solar energy on a cloudy day when it doesn't affect you so much when you're up at these heights. It's dodging the weather completely, yeah? It is, yeah, to a certain extent, that's right. I don't know the exact height. I couldn't find out the exact height of flies at, and maybe that's classified. So even if I did know, I couldn't tell us all. But <laughs> but assuming that, it just talks about the fact that it flies above commercial air traffic. So most commercial air traffic, you think, probably tops at around 36,000, maybe 38,000 feet. So I'm imagining that this thing's up around 40,000 feet or, or above. So again, cloud-wise, you don't get a lot of clouds up there. So that's all exciting. And what do you do with it? You put a plane up in the well, air. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Okay, so this is, other than trying to break their own records, <laughs> That's right. what's the purpose of this thing? Yeah, and there's a few purposes for it. So one of the things that I thought of straight away when I was reading this, I thought, well, when you had something like the tsunami that happened over in Sri Lanka many years ago, obviously one of the things that's knocked out is telecommunications. So mm. trying to communicate with anyone on the ground to either find out how people are or get emergency supplies to areas that need it, You've got no telecommunications there. Towers are knocked out. So what do you do? Well, if you can put an aircraft in the air that's not – I'm not talking about satellites here, which are obviously a lot of latency, a lot of issues with telecommunications there. But Mm. if you can put something up that's only at 40,000 feet or thereabouts, you can make that some form of telecommunications tool to be able to get some sort of communications down to the ground. So that was the first thing I thought of. Then you can also take photos. Now, you might want to take photos in that scenario with a tsunami. You might want to take photos in bushfires. You might want to take photos if you're the military trying to look at where bad people are. But at 40,000 feet, the photos are going to be much better resolution than the photos taken by a satellite. Mm. Obviously, most military, for example, have got access to satellite imagery but again, you've got to wait until that satellite's over the right spot. And also, you're taking photos from a long, long, long way away. So the satellite imagery just doesn't get down to the same resolution. Whereas when you're only at 40,000 feet, sure, it's still a fair way away. But the imagery is much better resolution. And you can make it hover above somewhere. So you can just have nice little circles going yeah. where it just sits there and hovers away there. So you can stay over the one spot. So you're getting that imagery on a constant basis. You could even, I suppose, I'm not sure how this would go, but I suppose you could do drops from there, but it seems like a fair way away to do a drop from. Normally, if you'd want to do a drop, maybe you bring it back down lower to the ground. So if you had food supplies, that type of thing, again, that emergency situation, or even delivering those food supplies into an army or an invading force somewhere, you might drop it down, drop some food supplies there, and then 
go back up to a higher height. But I think, but, it, but longevity in the in time in the air is not a big issue. No, that. that's right. So but for that particular purpose, but but for those other ones, yeah. No, that's right. You're probably right. You you want to load it up and then take it off there. The other thing that was interesting is that when you put a satellite up, let's say you're putting some technology to monitor something, CO two or whatever you might want it to monitor in the air, you put it on the satellite and you put it up there. You don't want to bring it back down then to change those sensors or change what it's monitoring because mm. it's a lot of work to get that satellite up there and then back down. You're probably going to burn it up or you don't want to get someone up there to do some maintenance on it. At least with this, if you're doing something where you want to upgrade the scientific equipment that might be on there, whatever it's monitoring, whatever it's doing, then you can have it fly around and then you can come down and land, change the equipment, upgrade the equipment, change what you're monitoring, for example, and send it back up again. So lots of uses. And I think with things like this, Sometimes you'll come up with the the actual technology to do it, and then later on, someone will say, "Hey, we've got that Zephyr S to use. Why don't we use it for this?" And someone says, "Great idea. Why didn't we think of that?" But I think once you get the first part, you then have all these other uses, and there are only a few uses that I've randomly come up with. There are lots of other uses on the day. So the weather balloon are probably numbered then. Well, that's probably a good point. Having weather monitoring up at that height, maybe, maybe one day weather forecast could get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gotten better and better at that because we now not only use radar, but we also use LIDAR, using light rather than radio waves. Yep. Um, and I think if you've got a closer proximity to where the weather's being made, um, rather than having to be further up in the uh, in the atmosphere there. Yeah, then, uh, so that, that might be another really good use for it to try and get weather forecasting even better. So mm. I think once you've got it there, there will be people, scientists, who will come up with different things they can use it for, but it's still pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, When you yeah. throw it up in the air for 26 days and say, month. knock yeah. yourself out. Yeah, and you say, yeah, well, we, we don't know if it's come down yet. Yeah, no, well, I, I don't, at this stage, right as we speak, then I don't know whether it's come down yet. But if you go and Google the Zephyr S, Z-E-P-H-Y-R, Zephyr S, then you can see how long it was up there for by the time you listen to this. The level of interactivity with computer software, linking humans in innovative ways to computers, just keeps increasing further and further to make gaming more and more immersive and allowing the gathering of health data to go deeper and deeper. Now, MIT researchers are now creating smart textiles to be linked up directly to machine learning systems, and the possibilities for this technology are enormous, Matt. When you look at a smartphone screen and we put our finger somewhere on it, the way that works is they have a whole range of, if you like, lines, horizontal and vertical lines on the screen. And on the sides of those is a small electric current that effectively, when you put your finger on that, it interrupts that and it says, oh, at grid position A17, if you think in very basic terms like a spreadsheet, a finger has been placed, therefore the person using the smartphone wants to put their finger right there. Now, we've advanced that a long way. We've got very accurate touchscreens in our phones. So scientists at MIT said, why don't we do that with textiles? And so if you imagine that same concept of a smartphone with a screen, they've done that with yeah, textiles right. where they've taken basically a piece of material. They've essentially put in synthetic threads. So you've got cotton and synthetic threads going across where they're actually able to sense things at a very accurate level. And so you say, well, that's wonderful. Again, scientists coming up with wonderful things. What are they going to do with that? So they started putting that into different types of clothing. So shoes with socks, for example. So you put your socks in one of these, or put your feet in one of these pairs of socks that's got all this sensing in there, and then you walk across a pad, a pressure pad. And by linking those two up, it says, oh, 
gee, James is pronating a bit there. So the top of shoe we should have for James is a shoe that gives him a little bit of support there. We just need 18 degrees of support there to stop him pronating. And then he'll do three minutes better on a park run run time. So, <laughs> so elite athletes. Beauty. <laughs> that's right. Elite athletes definitely are already using something like this to just really analyze their body to the nth degree to see exactly where they can make improvements. But you go to the other end of the scale and you say people that have had an injury, they've had an accident, for example, and they're trying to recover, again, they might have changed their gait. They might have changed the way they walk. So how can we best accommodate them because someone's had an injury and we need to work out how to get them back as close as normal to what they used to be before. So using these sort of pressure materials gives them the ability to look at those sensing I suppose the, the main thing I would see again is probably in sport. I can see these being on other parts of the body as well. So I'm a javelin thrower. So across my shoulder and arm and upper back, I have this sort of pressure material and then I throw the javelin and then they say, well, actually, you're just moving your arm there, just a little bit there, and there's putting a bit of pressure on this joint. You could actually throw it further if you just moved it a little bit further that way. Yeah, well, so elite sports, we do see a lot of that. And sometimes I do wonder, and I'm, I'm going to annoy some people here, but I do wonder whether we actually achieve much for society with elite sports. And I'll just stand back while I get a bit of a blowback there for people <laughs> who love their elite sports. But when you start to think of what happens in elite sports and then maybe we can translate that into helping the lives of everyone out there, mm. then I see a use for it. The, I suppose the thing that I see with elite sports sometimes is that people spend a lot of their time and energy on being one hundredth of a second faster or throwing something a few centimetres further. And I just... I'm not always convinced that contributes to our knowledge and our <laughs> process going forward in society, but I do apologise to yeah, all that, the That's another, topic, well, another that area is, for conversation another is, time perhaps. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so right when you, now we're just uh, blown away by the fact that you can do it. Yeah, that's right. And so this is where you'll see a lot of it used, but just the fact that you've got these materials that then can sense something that's happening in that material, I find that absolutely fascinating. Mm. And the process, again, someone sat there and said, well, hold on, smartphones, you just make up a matrix of horizontal and vertical and poof. Why don't we do that with the materials? Oh, you're crazy, Jimmy. <laughs> Still having too much to drink. And then next thing you know, someone says, no, we can actually do that. Health insurers all know that you, well, let's face it, much more importantly, they are much better off the longer we all remain healthy. So under the guise of looking after us, they're now using advanced analytics and a bit of artificial intelligence for targeting medical advice for their consumers. The question is, though, Will the people take the advice? Matt, what do you reckon? At the moment, no. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short answer. But uh, health, health insurance... insurance. <laughs> giving me advice on how to live my life. They yeah. can't tell me. People are just a touch suspicious, apparently, when people yeah. ring them from a health insurance company and say, we've noticed, based on your last few medical checkups and the last few times you've made a claim on your insurance, you seem to have an issue with X part of your body. Let's give you some advice on that. And people are a bit suspicious and say, no thanks, I think you're just trying to either put my premiums up or mm. uninsure me because you think I'm too uninsurable. But if we do look at this and if we just assume for a moment that health insurance companies are good people and they're trying to help us all out, they do have an incredible amount of data. And if you start to analyse that data, they could actually get to the stage where they give individualised advice to people and say, you seem to have cholesterol going up, maybe here's some things you can do about that, or you seem to have some various health traits in your family history that mean you should be doing this to make sure those things don't happen to you. Talk about uh, getting people angry on the other side of this microphone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Going, oh, so, they just know too much information. That's right. And I would love it if there was a program in place where you did have that information mm. 
that could help people going forward because sometimes people say, oh, I went along doing this for years, never realised I was at risk, and then, oh, this hit me out of the blue. But we know so much information now. We've got so much in terms of genetic testing mm. and then our behaviours and just the tests, the tests we can do, so many more tests we can do to find information about it. But what they're finding, exactly as I said, that when they do ring and say, we'd like you to be part of a program you look like you've got indicators, for example, that you could be maybe getting late-onset diabetes. Why don't you come and join this program? At this stage, only 40% of people, when they ring and actually tell them the information, tell them they're at risk, tell them they should do something about it, and we've got a program to help you, only 40% of people say, oh, tell me more. So okay. it sounds scary, but again, I think it's just we feel like the health insurance companies are the bad guys and the only reason they're doing this for us is to diddle us out of money somehow. So maybe they've got to change their image as part of that or as they talked about in this particular study, they've got to come up with compelling reasons for someone to go and join that study. Well, the healthier we are, the less they have to pay out to support your ill health. That's right. But they are basing it on a whole bunch of numerical crunching where sometimes they just don't want to insure people. Yeah, so that's, that's where right. the risk factor is. Yeah. Someone says, And that was oh, a no. big issue with genetics too. And, and when we started to unlock the human genetic code, um, and it, it's much easier now, you can actually go and map your own uh, genome. Yep. Um, but if that information gets out, you may not show empty, any symptoms or have any sort of uh, idea that you've got an underlying factor there that's yeah. locked in your genes that gives you a propensity to some sort of disease and a health insurer will go, oh, I can see this is locked away in your genes. In another 10 years, you're going to be complaining about heart problems. Yeah, that's right. And so we'll just do that insurance policy that covers you against all problems except heart problems. Yeah. 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 I know, that's terrible. So, <laughs> But again, we've got all this data and we've got the ability to crunch so much more data. So we should be able to use that for some way of giving us better lives and trying to be preventative in some of our maintenance. We do it in cars. We do it in aeroplanes. We just don't do it in the human body that way. Okay, folks, strap yourself in. It's scam time again, and we've got four big stories with some good news and some bad news. The first story is for those people who may have noted that they're not getting so many dodgy messages coming through on their message apps lately. Telcos here in Australia have been prompted to be more proactive in protecting us, Matt. It's getting there slowly. Now, we actually had some success when, back in 2020, the Australian Communication and Media Authority, ACMA, said, we want to tackle scam phone calls. So they talked to the telcos, and the only way you could do this is if someone like ACMA, some government authority, talked to the telcos and said, we'd really like you to do this. Are we making you do it? Maybe we're just really strongly encouraging, but we might make you do it. But relying on an individual telco to do it, of their own accord, I don't think it was ever going to happen. So it needed someone like ACMA to step in. And they did that, and they've had absolutely fantastic success. In the first 16 months of when the whole concept of reducing scam calls went into action, it was a code that was put in place, telcos have blocked 549 million scam phone calls. There's a possibility some of those were legitimate phone calls, but they've got a pretty good process now to try and work out that this is a scam phone call and then block it. So that's a huge success. So we go, happy days. Oh, thank goodness we're not having people lose their life savings anymore to these scammers. But no, no, that would be what would happen in a feel-good rom-com at the end. But <laughs> yeah, no. right, okay. And <laughs> you, you put a big stamp on it at the end, roll the credits. And, right. um, <laughs> this is real life we're talking about <laughs> here. walks out of the cinema happy. That's, that would be the case. 
in this real life scenario, the scammers say, damn those Australian telcos, damn Australian government, what can we do? We'll get around that. They did. Of course they did. Yeah, they said, right. let's now go to text messages. If we can't make phone calls anymore, let's go to text messages. So to give you an idea of how much that's changed, in the first six months of last year of 2021, $2.3 million was lost to scam text messages. This year, in the first six months, in 2022, $6.5 million lost to scam text messages. So basically tripled from last year. And why? Because the phone calls are being blocked, so they've turned to scam text messages. And I'm sure you and all our listeners have seen some of those scam text messages, or they've got a friend that's seen some. And again, they look sensible, reasonable. There was the COVID one we talked about before. Mm. Get your free COVID kit, just click on this link. Okay, you click on the link and then it asks for some details and away you go. You Mm. start diving down that little rabbit hole. So now ACMA has said, okay, it worked for phone calls. We now want you, telcos, to do something about the text messages, trying to stop these scam text messages. Again, the risk will be that I'll invite you around for a party one day and you don't turn up and I go, gee, that James is rude. He didn't turn up. He didn't even tell me he wasn't turning up. Oh, that's it. I'm not talking to him anymore. Well, until next week when I do another <laughs> another podcast with him. But apart from that. <laughs> so the, the risk is that sometimes a legitimate message will get picked up as a scam because then when mm. I talk to you about it, you say, I never got that message. Oh, look, mm. I sent it. Here's where I sent it. And at the other end, it says, oh, no. And I had something in there like, free beer, come around to my place, James. Oh, yeah. And that might have been what picked it up. There's a whole range of triggers and they're a bit cleverer than just looking at a few words like that. But hopefully, if they get it right, we'll stop those scam text messages coming through. And they are good. And I I had one where recently where someone sent me a text message and said, just have a look at this video for me. And I didn't click on the link. I ignored it completely. And when I spoke to that person, they said to me, did you look at that video? I went, no, I didn't. Well, I sent you the message. (laughs) I said, yeah, but I'm not going to click on a link that comes through on a random text message. And he said, but... You know me. It was from me. And I went, no, 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 no. Just because it came from you, it's very easy to spoof a number. It would be very easy to spoof a number coming from you. Oh, but but you know me. And that's right. And that's what the scammers rely on. Sometimes they use all these random phone numbers, hoping that one of the numbers that you see will be a legitimate number. Oh, I trust that person. I know them. I'll go and click on that link because they wouldn't have sent me a bad message, would they? And they didn't, but one of the scammers did. So there's a whole range of tricks they use. The telcos have got their work cut out for them. But the good part is that ACMA stepped in and said, let's have a crack at these guys, and they're going to have a crack. And they're having a go, at least. Yeah, look, my wife actually made a comment just uh, completely independently of uh, of me going through the scripts and whatnot for for the show. And um, she said, look, I've been getting fewer and fewer of those messages and and phone calls and things like that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yep, perfect. Some bad news for Melburnians. Uh, there's been a bit of a spike in credit card skimming in a, a number of suburbs, costing cardholders several thousands of dollars. Matt, what's been happening there? This is one of those really old-fashioned tricks that seems to have reared its ugly head again. When you take a credit card and it's got the magnetic strip on it, it's actually very easy to get a magnetic strip reader to mm. see what's on there. And all that's on there is the basic information about that credit card. You just can imprint that. You can do credit card, uh, magnetic card um, input devices that put that information on a magnetic strip and they read it off there. So some scammers go along to an ATM and they just stick over the actual normal insertion hole Mm. a little device that you don't even notice. You come along to an ATM, you stick your card in, you get your money out and away you go. 
what they do is they read your information. As the card's being put in, this device reads information, the same as an ATM reads, or the same yeah. as someone in a, a good old-fashioned shop that doesn't have tap to pay, That someone that uses the magnetic card reader on your card takes that information. So it takes that information. So straight away they have your information. And then normally they have at a distance somewhere a camera set up, so they pick up your PIN. They take those two, they then go and create a new credit card that's just got the same information on the magnetic strip, and they walk up to an ATM, put a card in that's a replica of yours, put the pin in, and away you go. No alerts from your perspective, because yeah. you don't get an alert every time some money's taken out of an ATM. You don't suddenly see your bank balance drop unless you happen to check your bank balance that day, and sometimes they'll actually look at a bank balance for someone and make a decision on how much they might steal based on the balance. So someone's got $20 in the bank, they say, well, we're not going to take any money from there because there's not much point for a start and they'll notice it. If someone's got $10,000 in there, they go, well, they probably won't notice a couple hundred dollars, so we'll just take some. And then they might do it repeatedly so that it's not ringing any alarm bells that, again, a big transaction just went through. It might just be some small transactions here and there. And again, until that person checks their statement, no, hold on, did we take 100 bucks out of that ATM? Oh, were we over in that suburb? Um, I don't think we were. Let's contact the bank. But that's a month later. So in this particular example, some skimmers got about $9,000 at a few Melbourne ATMs. They put the devices on there, skimmed the details, and away they went. Now, this is a really hard one to pick up because you don't necessarily look at an ATM in detail. Mm. When you walk up to an ATM, you, you don't put your head down the bottom and look around at every angle and see what's there. You just stick your card in, get your money, and away you go. I must admit, I don't use ATMs much at all because... Well, yeah, I've almost completely stopped as yeah, well. Yeah, you just tap to pay everywhere. What do you need cash for anymore? And there are some places that only take cash, and I try to avoid those places because it's too inconvenient. You've got to have cash. What? What's that thing? <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is interesting. And even... Well, I remember something from about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, I'm seeing there's like a false front that they put on a yeah. on the on the card um, insertion slot. That's right. So we haven't seen it for a while, and you're right. It was yeah. the, This it's was an old-fashioned scam, but it seems to have come back because people have... Yeah, well, people have forgotten about it. They've forgotten, or ATM users have forgotten about those schemes. So you're not really looking out for it anymore. Mm. But it has changed. I mean, the whole thing with cash, I remember I I went to a rugby union match just recently down at the SCG, the last match to be played at the SCG for a number of years, and unfortunately the Wallabies went down to England. But it wasn't that many years ago when I'd go to matches at the SCG where you had to get cash. You had to take some cash out of an ATM because most of the food places there only took cash. And so you're Mm. stuck there at the SCG for the whole day and you, you need cash. What was interesting the other night when I was there was that all the food places, all the bar everywhere had the SCG is a contactless venue. So mm. the only way you can do things now is through a card, through yeah, some sort of tap and pay. Accept cash. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's changed, and it, that doesn't seem that many years for that change to go from some places only cash to now it's all contactless. Obviously, the pandemic. Well, yeah, it helps to have that. a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That was great. Now I, I just think it's fantastic. It's so much easier to go about your day not having to worry about a bit of cash tucked away somewhere. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's something to be aware of. I don't see it really taking off, but it's pretty annoying if you're the one person that gets done for just $10, a dollar, who cares how much it is, it's still annoying when someone steals money, but people are doing this for thousands of dollars, mm. and again, just, you've got to be alert and so aware of so many things that are out there at the moment. Internet reviews through Google are a big deal for businesses today, so it's no surprise I guess that some dodgy so-and-sos might use this as a threat for extortion. Matt, what are the details on this depravity? It comes back to my kids. Whenever we're somewhere in a new city or a new place, and I say, oh, let's go to dinner, kids, the 
the only vague mention of let's go to dinner and the four of them have got their phones out looking at reviews. It's just an instant reaction for someone, and my kids are late teen, early 20s, just an instant reaction. I must admit, I'd probably do it as well, but I'd probably look at a few other things first and go, oh, yeah, I might have a look at a review there. Maybe check a menu first. That's that's one thing that seems obvious, I know, but they just seem to be, it, it almost seems to be that instant reaction check a restaurant and they almost draw so you can draw the fastest and give the reviews for various restaurants around the place so it is big business if you've got poor reviews if you have a low star rating on your restaurant in particular or your business in general but your restaurant in particular then mm. you can expect no one to turn up so the scammers have turned to extortion is what i'd call it where they're actually putting yeah. some one star reviews on a number of restaurants and then they're sending them an email and saying You've got all these one-star reviews. This is hurting your business. I put them all there. Quite brazen. I put them all there. They're all fake. But unless you pay me some money, then I'll leave them there. But if you think it's hurting your business and you want them removed, just pay this money to me and then I'll remove them. Now, they're not asking for a lot of money. And one of the ones I read about, they were only asking for $75. Doesn't seem like much money. So for most restaurants, they'd say, well, if I only have a couple of customers who don't come in tonight, well, that $75 is well and truly worth it. So they pay the money. But then... What happens next? Oh, we got that particular restaurant. Yeah. Well, next time we can go back for a bit more and we can just do this every night, go along for a week, for months at a time, yeah, and they'll just pay. pay and it does feel like, doesn't it, the old days of the mafia yeah. saying that you've got to pay some, inverted commas, protection money for your business. Otherwise, there'll be something bad that happens. It might happen by us, but it's a bit of protection oh, money you're paying. Me. So this is the, the latest one. Now, they are going, some of these restaurants are going to the likes of Google, if there's a Google review that's been placed there, and saying, can you remove this review, please? Because it's a scam. And look at the email I've received. And obviously, we don't want to pay them the money. We'd rather you take it down. Now, Google has, to their credit, taken some down when it's obvious that it's a scam. But if someone's clever enough in the way they do it, and they don't make it look like that, but then they send someone an email, go, this one was me, I'll take it down once you pay me the money. Is that really proof enough to Google? Because they might say, well, you just got a one-star review because you gave bad service, mm. and now you give me this fake email to get me to take it down. So oh, I'm not taking that one down. So oh, Google has refused. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Google has refused to take some of them down because they haven't been convinced they are an actual scam. So it's a tricky old world out there at the moment. Who'd <laughs> <laughs> uh, have a small business? Now, I want to avoid the notion that the victims in this next story deserve their bitter pill. Victims of crime deserve justice regardless of what side of the river they're from. But this next story has the air of a sting to make Ocean's Eleven proud. Get this. A group of Indian farmers have streamed fake professional cricket matches to Russian gamblers for two weeks and cleaned up in the process. Matt, (laughs) this is a great story. Well... It's a tough story for one of those Russian gamblers, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I must admit, I was a bit the same as you. I went, oh, that's good. That's good. But they're still doing the wrong thing. Back Damn it. in 1973, they made that movie with Robert Redford, The Sting. And yeah, I that's love right. that movie. I love it. I love it. I love it. But, um, so for anyone yeah. a little bit younger than us, James, go and have a look at The Sting. Yeah. You probably look at it now. And, Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13. I love it. That's right. All those ones where they do do the big setup. The Sting was a classic with a, a fake horse race, obviously. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, or fake horse racing. But yeah, I do love that movie. But I'm sure if you watch it now, we go, oh, gee, it looks so poor. The quality of the set and all the rest of it. The, the story's acting, still really good, though. The so story, anyway, that's yeah, right. that, And we're talking about some classic yeah. actors. That's right. <laughs> so this one here, they decided, some Indian farmers decided to set up their own fake IPL, Indian Premier League, where they basically went out and got some kids to play cricket. They paid them $5. 
for me, you know, as a kid, I, I would have done, you know, playing cricket for nothing. But $5, someone said, here's $5 to play some cricket. Oh, okay, it sounds like good fun. They set them up in the full outfits of some of the Indian Premier League teams. They got some umpires out there. They put some advertising around a field they had to make it look like the IPL. Set up the cameras, the whole lot. So it's a lot of work to go to. Then they set up some betting and they had all these various bets. Now, in cricket <laughs> nowadays, you can bet on anything. The next wicket to fall. Will a mm. wicket fall in this over? Who's going to score the next boundary? Will this particular batsman score a 50? All sorts of different things you can bet on. And so very simply, they would put all these bets out there. For some reason, I don't know why they targeted some Russian bettors, but they were people in Russia. They were betting on all these outcomes. Well, maybe you want to target people who, you know, they're not so familiar with the game? Well, possibly that might be it, and not so familiar with the players. And they go, hold on, that doesn't look like Virat Kohli. <laughs> I don't remember being a 15-year-old. <laughs> so you might you might be right there. I'm not sure why, but that, that's a pretty good reason that they might have targeted someone that wasn't and really familiar with it. Ice hockey for the Russians, but anyway, yeah. Exactly. So they had them out there playing, and then the umpire had a an earpiece in, and as the bets were being placed, because this was all streamed live, as the bets were being placed, the umpire would tell the players, obviously, and say, well, all the money's on you, batsman number one, to score the next boundary. So batsman number two, make sure you score a boundary next. Batsman number one, don't hit a boundary. So then they would just basically play the game (laughs) in response to the best outcome for the people running the organisation, running the the betting ring, rather than the actual people putting the bets on. So next wicket to fall, when lots of money, when it looked like one batsman was struggling, so hey, you make sure you struggle, look like you're really at all odds and you look like the next wicket to fall, lots of money we put on you, and then make sure the other batsman gets out next, all those sort of things. Make sure someone drops a catch or make sure someone takes a great catch, all sorts of different things, scenarios. Yeah, so they got away with it for two weeks. They played this fake tournament, this faux tournament, for two weeks before finally... The Russian mafia got wind of it (laughs) and everyone scattered (laughs) for the sewers. Yeah, Yeah, so it it does sound absolutely incredible. A lot of mucking around to go to. Imagine a couple of people sitting around a pub going, hey, we should set up a fake IPO. And everyone would go, oh, that's a good idea. But But these guys... Yeah, some real know-how to know your links and how can we get this one well particular demographic yeah. of gamblers in imagine if you did all that and then no one put any bets on <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's gone a long way our betting hasn't it but when you start mm. getting that I, I think it's a classic story but i'm sure we'll hear more about that at some time in the future <laughs> and that sounds like a cuticle stumps on this our 69th podcast of tech talk with matthew dickerson and what a cracking tech talk it was too and I reckon that was a clever idea of BMW with the heated seat subscriptions as well. Quite left field if you ask me. <laughs> I'm James Eddy and it has been an absolute pleasure once again to bring you Tech Talk and we hope to catch you again next week. Don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe.